On this week's 51%, both the word witch and the word feminist are highly charged words. Witches usually represent an antithesis to the patriarchy. They represent everything that is othered in society. It's the season of the witch, coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and stories. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. The spooky season is upon us, and it's one of my favorite times of the year. It means pumpkins, apple cider, leaf peeping, and in upstate New York, a nice reprieve from the humidity of summer before diving into what is usually the months-long chill of winter. It also, of course, means Halloween, and growing up, my go-to costume was a witch. I was a witch probably four or five times before I switched over to vampires and the occasional Little Red Riding Hood. Either I was ahead of the curve or things haven't really changed, because despite the popularity of shows like Squid Game and the latest offerings from Marvel, Google's Frightgeist still predicts the most popular Halloween costume in 2021 will be the good old-fashioned witch. So today we're talking about witches, why they're so popular, what modern witchcraft looks like, and how we got here, because the history of witches in the U.S. can certainly be a difficult read. And where else would we start other than the Salem Witch Trials? Every year, crowds flock to Salem, Massachusetts to learn more about the 1692 hysterical witch hunt and trials that left 20 people dead. More than 300 years later, groups are still trying to clear the names of everyone convicted. Democratic State Senator Diana DiZaglio is behind the latest bill to clear the name of Elizabeth Johnson Jr. Actually, I heard about Elizabeth Johnson Jr. from uh, a North Andover Middle School class. Uh, Their teacher, Carrie LaPierre, had reached out to me and said that she and her students had been talking about somebody who was accused during the Salem witch trials. She had never actually had her name cleared, unfortunately, even though all the others had actually had their names cleared. And I decided to file this bill at the request of the North Andover Middle School students. Johnson was born around 1670 and lived in a part of Andover that's considered North Andover today. Zaglio says Senate Bill 1016 would officially exonerate Johnson, adding her name to a resolve in Massachusetts general law that acknowledges that while the Salem witch trials were lawful at the time, the laws by which they operated have long since been abandoned. Until then, however, Johnson is technically the last remaining witch from the trials. There's been a lot of speculation about what really caused the Salem witch trials in the first place whether there were actually witches, whether the accusers were outright lying, or whether they suffered from a neurological illness called conversion disorder caused by extreme psychological stress. To learn more, I got the chance to speak with Rachel Chris Doan, the director of education at the Salem Witch Museum. She says a combination of factors had already put the community under a lot of pressure. So this is a pretty chaotic time in Salem Village, and also if we kind of zoom out, just Massachusetts Bay Colony, generally speaking. Uh, Salem Village was in the process of trying to separate from Salem Town. In the early 1670s, they had been granted the right to have their own parish, which was a big step towards independence, uh, which is great. It meant they could attend their you know weekly church meetings a little closer to home. 
but a factional crisis had erupted pretty early on uh, where half the village likes a ministerial candidate, the other half hates them, uh, and they fight and they fight until they drive that candidate out of town, essentially. By this point, they're on their fourth minister, whose name is Samuel Paris, uh, and he is kind of you know, not the best in terms of smoothing over the factional divide. He's a very incendiary figure in and of itself. They're fighting about what his salary should be. He's demanding more. It's basically this kind of mess, you know, in the months leading up to January of 1692. So basically what starts it all is in the home of Samuel Paris, we see his daughter and his niece become very ill. Uh, So their names are Betty Paris, who's nine years old, and Abigail Williams, who's 11 years old. Betty and Abigail are falling to the ground. They're screaming. They're clutching their heads. They're making animal noises. And nobody can quite figure out what is wrong with the girls. Uh, So essentially what they do is, you know, they try all the traditional remedies. There's a month of fasting and prayer and things like that. They call in the village doctor, and he looks at the girls, and he says, I don't have a medical explanation for what's going on here. It looks to me like this is the work of the devil. This is bewitchment. And that's really what kicks off the witchcraft trials, because now they need to find the witches who are in the community who are supposedly tormenting these young girls. The Salem witch trials officially took place between June and September of 1692. Chris Stone says anywhere from 150 to 200 people from Salem and its surrounding communities were accused of witchcraft around this time. She says the accused could be any age, race, or gender, but at the beginning at least, they were mostly people who, for one reason or another, didn't fit in with the rest of society. Women who were particularly outspoken, who fought publicly with their husbands, or older spinsters thought to be a burden on the community. Johnson was one of 28 people in her family to face accusations, including her mother, multiple aunts, and grandfather. Chris Stone says the political landscape in Massachusetts only contributed to the frenzy. The colony was rewriting its laws and choosing officials as it worked through a new charter. And with alleged witches filling the jails in Essex County, Governor Sir William Fitz created an emergency court to oversee the trials, called the Court of Oyer and Terminer. So essentially they're told, do what you think is best, you know, base your decisions on English common law, on English precedent, but do what you think is right and what the situation demands. And that, unfortunately, leads to devastating consequences. In the court of Oyer and Terminer, you have the afflicted, so the girls who are supposedly being tormented by witchcraft, in the room, screaming, falling to the ground, claiming they're being tormented by the devil, and you as the accused have to defend yourself against this sea of writhing witnesses. And the really destructive decision that's made by the court of Oyer and Terminer is their choice to accept something called spectral evidence. So spectral evidence is essentially based on the idea that a witch could theoretically project a spectral version of themselves, a ghostly version of themselves, out of their physical body that could go off across large distances and torment. And the victims of a spectral attack were the only ones who could see the specter. And so that means if you were accused of witchcraft standing before this court, you could have the witnesses pointing up to the rafters saying, I see the specter of Rebecca Nurse up on the ceiling. You can't see her, but I can, and that's how I know she's a witch. And that was being used as enough evidence to convict and warrant executions during the Salem Witch Trials. (laughs) 
Ultimately, 20 people were executed for witchcraft, 19 of them hanged, and another tortured to death. Johnson confessed to being a witch and was sentenced to death in 1963. But by then, public opinion on the trials had soured. Chris Stone says almost everyone in Salem had either spent time in jail or knew someone in jail. And with his own wife among the accused, Governor Phipps disbanded the court of Oyer and Terminer in October 1692. Johnson's execution was avoided, and she ultimately died an old woman in 1747 at the age of about 77. Chris Stone says the Salem witch trials were the largest and harshest witch trials between England and the English colonies, but they were far from the first. Ironically, being called a witch was sometimes more hazardous than the feared wrath of a witch. But it wasn't always that way. Witch history is hard to pin down, because quite frankly, belief in magic and people with magical abilities has existed for thousands of years across nearly every culture, and each culture's definition of a witch is constantly evolving. But there was a time when magic was looked at a little more kindly. I got the chance to speak with Kate Laity, an award-winning author of several books spanning a range of genres, including Chastity Flame, Dream Book, How to Be Dull, and more. She also produces two audio programs, and while splitting her time between Hudson, New York, and Scotland, she teaches at the College of St. Rose in Albany. She particularly specializes in medieval studies and literature. Especially in the Middle Ages, healing charms, for example, that we would see as something sort of magic and not science, they would have seen as effective ways to deal with various kinds of health problems or other problems. There are a lot of journey charms, too, so you don't become injured or lost or imperiled on your journey. And there are, of course, you know, charms against uh, having your cattle stolen. <laughs> and again, if you think in Old English, the word for cattle is also the word for wealth. So this is a way of saying, don't steal my stuff. But we would think of charms as sort of magic. They would have just thought of them as ineffective technology. This is something that begins to change in the Middle Ages, where you have sort of two strands, the sort of folk magic that most people would be familiar with, and which, you know, continued from pre-Christian times into Christian times because you just adapted it to the new beliefs. So instead of maybe praying to this or that God, you would just pray to the Christian God, and you would have masses said over, you know, there's a, a wonderful elaborate charm where you take a piece, when a field is not producing enough, you take a piece of it out and you do a variety of things to it, but then you take it to the church to be blessed and you pour milk and honey and all these things into the ground and then you put it back down. And so that's a way of restoring the kind of regenerative power that the field should have. But what you also have is a kind of learned magic that is practiced amongst the clergy, which is, you know, the monks who are reading all these books. And many of them during the Crusades, for example, a lot of books were coming up from the Middle East through Spain and a lot of books that were mathematics and more learned kinds of magic that were more about conjuration, about dealing with necromancy, you know, talking to the dead or conjuring up spirits, which were something that was completely alien to the average person. One scholar, Michael Bailey, argues that in the late Middle Ages, these things kind of get overlapped in a way that matters because people in power were beginning to worry about unorthodox behaviors within the church. And this is what in the early modern period, not the medieval, in the early modern period, you start to get the witch hunts. 
How common were witch hunts? I mean, we talk about the Salem witch trials, but worldwide, how common were they? They would come and go. And what we find, more recent scholarship ties them to uh, problems of orthodoxy within the church. And so it's not really sort of moments of discovering that women were practicing witchcraft. It's moments of anxiety about um, what's happening in religion, that people are not being orthodox, and then accusations of witchcraft because they're doing something supernatural that is not what they should be doing. And of course, they're almost always tied to some kind of problem of getting food. In Western Europe, there's a lot of uh, periods where there's very, very rainy years, and so the crops fail, and there are big witch hunts at those times. And again, the same thing with Salem, that there were a number of concerns about food that are sort of fueling the anxieties behind it. And we find this in, in, in many of those occasions where there are sort of pressures on the society that people don't have a way of coping with, you know, that we would, you know, in some instances, you might just say acts of God. But the way that people respond to them is somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to be to blame for this. So, well, she's a witch or he's a witch or, you know, and again, depending on the region, we're accustomed to associating witches with women. But in some areas, and, and sort of interesting in European history, in Finland and in Iceland, the greater part of the accusations were against men. And part of that is to do with very long histories of gendered magic in Iceland and in Finland, where there's magic practiced by men and magic practiced by women, and they're quite distinct. How were they different? A large part of, especially in Iceland, which I'll talk about because at the, at the top of my mind, it's a little closer. Women's magic tends to be focused much more on prognostication. So they can see. They can see what is coming or they can see what has happened. Men and women both are able to read dreams. And one of the interesting aspects of, of sort of Norse mythology is that the figure of Odin is one of the few that practices both what is considered the male magic and the feminine magic. Where does the word witch come from? Uh, the word witch is, is a very, very old English word. There's a very common, people will say it has to do with bending. It has nothing to do with bending. That's a completely different word root. And what it has to do with is witchcraft. We have the earliest attestation of it in Old English. I mean, this is in the oldest versions of English, and it comes from an Indo-European root, but it's always meant exactly that. And that's where the word Wicca, which many people will be familiar with, is just the Old English word for witch. <laughs> There's Wicca with an A and Witcha with an E, so we have a masculine and feminine version of it, but it's the same word. So obviously during these times you've got people being accused of witchcraft, but is it common for people to identify like, I am a witch? Well, probably not at the time they were being accused. I mean, you would have women who might be practiced in certain arts, that they're able to heal people. Maybe they have a knowledge of herbs that's been handed down. Usually these things handed down within families or learned from somebody else older. And so they have abilities to do this. And of course, the idea of cursing is something that's always probably always been with us too. And if you look at the long history of magic, it's, it's fascinating how many of these 
tangible forms that you want to have sort of, especially when you're angry. It's a lot of magic is about anger because it comes from the idea of people who want something to happen and don't feel they have any power to be able to make it happen. And so if you look like in ancient Greek and Roman cultures, we have all these uh, lead tablets with curses written on them, you know, like still find somebody being cursed to this day because their, their tablet has been found. And we don't always, always, you know, know who these people were, but somebody was really mad that day. Do you identify as a witch? Usually, yeah. <laughs> Depends uh-huh. on the mood. But yes, in large part because... I've got all this history in my mind, and I see a great power in in claiming that name, and also as a way of thinking about how you approach the world. I mean, part of this is tied, too, to my creative work, not only writing, but also art and music that I do, that it comes from this idea of re-enchanting the world and and finding that, that magic in the everyday life. So how did we go from the Salem Witch Trials to the top of the rankings on Frightgeist? And beyond costumes and All Hallows' Eve, for years now, if you search for information on witchcraft, you'll find articles signaling its rise. More and more people of all genders are actively identifying themselves as witches, with estimates putting the number at around 1.5 million witches in the U.S. Nowadays, you can buy professional witch services online, from tarot readings to rituals. You can have supplies for spells delivered right to your door. Witches are social media influencers. They're authors and podcasters. They're activists and symbols of feminine power. They might don the black hat and carry around a broom when they feel like it, but they're also your coworker and your neighbor. Pam Grossman has written and contributed to several books on witchcraft, including her 2019 book, Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power, and her new release with Jessica Hunley, titled simply Witchcraft. Since 2017, she's also been the host of the popular podcast The Witch Wave, for which Vulture dubbed her, quote, the Terry Gross of witches. I asked her why witches seem to be having their moment, and she says it's really been hundreds of years in the making. Well, we first start to see a more sympathetic look at witches really in the 19th century. There were writers such as a French writer named Jules Michelet, who wrote a book called La Sorciere in the middle of the 19th century, um, who was following a lot of other scholars who were starting to look back at the witch hunts with a more sympathetic lens. It wasn't an always historically accurate lens, mind you, but, but you know, people would start to look back at the witch hunts and say, hey, wait a second, it was mostly women who were targeted, and what was it about these women that made them such a threat to the church? And so, you know, around that time, you'll see writers who talk about witches as these oppressed but truly powerful women who had access to, you know, these brilliant minds or some kind of supernatural intuition or some kind of magic power. And aren't those women amazing? And and, and they shouldn't have been persecuted, according to those 19th century writers. Now, as we now know, you know, those people who were killed for being witches probably were not actually witches or probably did not see themselves as witches. 
However, that sympathetic notion of a witch being this oppressed woman who has access to some divine feminine energy is a very romantic notion that then feminists took up in the 20th century. And so we really start to see people choose to call themselves witches in the 20th century, certainly with second wave feminism, but also with the rise of Wicca, which is a modern religion that was really, you know, largely founded by a gentleman in England named Gerald Gardner. And the Wiccan movement is a whole very interesting thread to this story, too. In your book, you say that you've used the word witch to signify that you're a feminist. Can you go into a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, I think both the word witch and the word feminist are highly charged words. And they are words that point to having access to some kind of power or some kind of agency that is connected to the feminine. And... So the words are not interchangeable, but for me and many other witches, they are interrelated because witches usually represent an antithesis to the patriarchy. They represent everything that is othered in society. And that can be, you know, having a feminine body or a body of color, or a trans body. It can be having access to, you know, some kind of intuitive power or otherworldly power that I believe can coexist happily with science and medicine, um, but is, you know, certainly not the same as those things and can be considered an alternative or a supplement or complement to those more mainstream practices. And so for me, the two words are, are very deeply woven together. So what does being a witch look like to you? Because one thing I've learned is that everyone seems to have their own interpretation. Yes. One of the wonderful things about modern witchcraft is that there is no one path and it's decentralized. In other words, there's no pope of witchcraft. There's no one book that one has to read in order to call oneself a witch. And so you're right. For every witch you ask, you are going to have a different answer about why they consider themselves a witch or how their witchcraft practice works. In my case... I am pagan. You know, I was raised Jewish, so when I'm being cheeky, I sometimes call myself Jewitch. <laughs> but, you know, being a practicing pagan essentially means that I'm celebrating the different changing of the seasons. I'm celebrating different phases of the moon. I have an altar where I connect with what I call capital S spirit, and that can take the shape of, you know, various deities um, who symbolize different aspects of that spirit. And it also means that I do cast spells and engage in rituals that are deeply meaningful and transformative for me. When did you realize you were a witch? Or at least when did you start getting more into it? So I definitely considered myself 
kind of magical, I suppose, since I was a child. I had these woods in my backyard and I would play outside like a lot of kids do and, you know, cast spells and commune with, you know, different spirits and so on, or at least I imagined that I was. But it wasn't until I was a teenager and discovered witchcraft books and the occult section of the library and different bookstores and new age shops that I really learned that witchcraft was something that you didn't have to pretend that you were engaging in, that there's actually a long history of people who have practiced some form of witchcraft. You'll actually hear that a lot, that the teen years are a time that a lot of people turn towards witchcraft. And, And I think it's no coincidence because it's also a time of life when we're coming into our own power, our own identity, and looking for ways to feel like we have more agency in our lives at a time when we don't in a lot of ways. We still have to answer to our teachers and parents and peers. And then along comes this practice that says, you have power right now. You know, you have access to something bigger than yourself, even as a 13-year-old. And for me... Learning about witchcraft as a teenager was an incredibly positive thing. For those who might be interested in learning more, where should they start? You mentioned that you started a lot by just reading books. Oh my goodness. (laughs) There are so many books on witchcraft now. It's a real feast, but it can also be overwhelming for people because they don't know where to start. So, you know, there are certainly wonderful books that came out when the second wave of feminism was cresting here in the U.S. that I still think have value. Uh, One such book is The Spiral Dance by Starhawk, who really is one of the pioneers of earth-based and goddess-based witchcraft here in the U.S. And that book still, you know, stands the test of time. I think there's a lot of beauty there. And also, the same year that that book came out, which is 1979, is a book called Drawing Down the Moon by actually a radio journalist who was also a Wiccan priestess named Margot Adler. And this is a wonderful overview just on the history of the witchcraft movement and all of the different groups that have made up this movement over the years. So those two are really great foundational texts. But then in terms of casting spells, just go to a bookstore and figure out what's calling to you. You know, we've all had that that experience of picking up a book and just kind of getting that rush of excitement or or feeling like it's a homecoming. So whatever book gives you that feeling is the right book to start with. Are there simpler spells and charms that are good for beginners? Ooh, that's a that's a really lovely question. Certainly candle magic is a simple way of casting a spell and it's one of the most accessible you don't even have to get a fancy special candle at a witchcraft store you can get any old candle at a grocery store and as long as you're putting your intentions into it there's a good chance it's going to be really effective for you overall what do you think people misunderstand about witches i think one of the most common misconceptions is that if you are a witch, that means you have to reject what other 
religion of origin you might have been raised with, and that's simply not true. Yes, there are some people who were raised with a religion that they might have found oppressive or even harmful, and so they might reject that religion and turn towards witchcraft, but that is not everyone's story. There are Christian witches and Jewish witches and Buddhist witches and Hindu witches and Muslim witches and so on. So being a witch can absolutely be complementary to other spiritual paths that you might be walking. The other most common misconception, which I almost hesitate to bring up because it's really bad PR, but is the notion that witchcraft is somehow affiliated with the devil, diabolism. And nothing could be further from the truth. Most witches are incredibly loving, kind, nature-worshipping, or at least nature-honoring people. And the reason that people sometimes associate witchcraft with some kind of evil comes right out of the time of the witch hunts. You know, we're talking the 15th through 17th centuries in Europe and later here in, you know, what became the United States. And that is when this idea that witches were devil-worshipping and sexually deviant and murderous and all of the horrible things and, and, and reasons that they used to rationalize killing innocent people, you know, and, and unfortunately, those stories and those horrific beliefs are still sometimes with us today. And, and we do see that in discriminatory practices against people who identify as witches. And there are still witch hunts that happen around the world today too, literal witch hunts. It's deeply, deeply damaging and couldn't be further from the truth. Looking back on the Salem witch trials, as Grossman noted, most of those accused probably weren't actually witches. Lying by confessing to witchcraft and turning in other witches increased one's odds of avoiding execution. Some of the convicted eventually petitioned for exoneration in the 1700s, and up until the early 2000s, various groups have worked to redeem those who remain. But how did Elizabeth Johnson Jr. get left out? How did we get here? State Senator Diana DeZaglio says unlike some of the others who were wrongfully convicted, Johnson didn't have any descendants to push for her exoneration. She never married, she had no children, and some historians have suggested that she may have been mentally disabled. DeZaglio says it could still take a while for Bill 1016 to make its way through the Massachusetts Senate, but she's optimistic it'll pass, and it's good for all parties involved. You know, this is something that's a matter of equality and making sure that that justice is served. And, you know, I commend these students for taking their civic education course to the next level. This is something that I think demonstrates their ability to speak up and be a voice for the voiceless. And I think that that carries over into all different issues that they're going to be able to advocate moving forward. And it also demonstrates that no matter how young, you can make a difference. Thank you. 
You've been listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I have so many people to thank for this episode. State Senator Diana DeZoglio, Rachel Chris Stone with the Salem Witch Museum, Kate Laity, Pam Grossman, our executive producer, Dr. Alan Shartok, and of course, you for tuning in. To learn more about our guests, check out WAMCpodcast.org, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, we're on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know what you think and if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half, he was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way, at night and on the hallway. My cool, no electricity, hot rain on the concrete, sweet melting little girl dreams. I said, Oh, I want a big life, not a house that could have been like. Where are you taking me? Where are you taking me?